minutes of graphic content <laughs> intended for a mature audience. <laughs> Listener discretion is advised. Hi guys. Hi. My name is Gage. And my name is Ray. And you are listening to Gore Report, our true crime podcast. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very good. Very nice. Oh, it was kind of lame. No, nothing about you is lame, my friend. No, just weird. <laughs> very weird. Yes, we are weird. And I'm going to go ahead and do this before we do anything else in this intro. I'm totally going to like bust you out to everyone right now Uh we are recording this on tuesday you guys are not going to hear this till thursday but today is ray's birthday yay yay happy birthday my friend oh thank you and i'm sure you're gonna get a lot of birthday wishes from everyone thank you thank you thank you from everyone whoever decides to comment but you know what? This just sounds like a big old ploy just to, just to bomb me with comments on my birthday. <laughs> That's what you're doing. This is See, he pranks me in ways that he doesn't think that I'll pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> this is our dynamic. You should expect nothing less. So to move on past that, you guys, we do hope you are having a good day and a good week and, and a, a good, good <laughs> we always hope you're having just the best, most fantastic, greatest time. Come on, Adjective King. What I is know, going on? I ran out of adjectives. I really had to scan my brain for a second. <laughs> I hope the sun is shining for you. I hope your car is clean and has gas. I hope your tires aren't slashed. I hope both sides of your pillow are always cool. I hope you had your favorite breakfast today. I hope the microwave cooks to perfection and there are no cold spots and that there's no poppings all over the inside of the microwave <laughs> that gets on my nerves. We also hope you walked your dog or even better your dog walked itself and was <laughs> safe about it. Either way we hope your existence is just absolutely incredible and if this is your first time listening to Ray and I will welcome. And we're sorry. And we are sorry. <laughs> and if you would like to do anything at all if you like what you hear. Maybe leave us a good review or a good rating because it's a small gesture that really helps us out and we appreciate it. Yes. So we do have a couple of people to thank. We've got some new Gorgoats. Gorgoats. Yes. So a big thank you to Heather and Leah. Yay. Yay. <laughs> thank you guys so much. We greatly, greatly appreciate that. The Gorgoats are freaking awesome. So. To all of my friends out there, and my friend right here. Oh, no. I knew I, I had a feeling you was going to rope me into this. <laughs> you was just going to rope me into it. You always do. Say goodbye to thine asshole. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God, is it going to be one of those? It's going to be one of those, ain't it? Your asshole will jump on a plane and go up several thousand feet, jump out, and then realize it does not have a parachute. Great. That is fantastic. Well, lay it on me. Today's story is about the most infamous serial killer to come from the state of New York. Oh. 
He liked to write menacing letters, and he thought there were demons in his neighborhood dogs. Wow, okay. That, that's one way to start. I am talking about the forty-four caliber killer, the son of Sam, David Berkowitz. Oh, shit. Yep, I knew this one was coming. I knew it was coming, and I knew it's. this is just... I will say... I don't know as much about David Berkowitz as I do several other serial killers. He's one that I just haven't went down that rabbit hole with. Mm -hmm. But I do know a little bit. But knowing you, this is going to be like me hearing this for the first time. Because I genuinely don't know as much. So, (laughs) wonderful. I am... I'm one second buckling my (laughs) seatbelt. Buckling my asshole in. (laughs) I am prepared. Everything's fastened. We are good. Well, he completely terrorized New York City, and he killed six people and wounded seven others between 1976 and 1977. He murdered in such a way that the citizens of New York lived in a constant state of fear. God, what a vibe to start with, Jesus. So I will be covering Berkowitz in two parts, and today's part is going to take us on a journey through his life. So we'll also be talking about several of the murders and what drove him to kill. And we will be leading right up to that first infamous letter that he sent to the police. So this is an insane story and it wouldn't all fit in just one episode. Gotcha. gotcha. At least I felt because there is a treasure trove of information out there. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Cool. I'm ready. Yeah. So here we go. Buckle in your assholes, everybody. Son of Sam killed six and wounded seven. How many people do you know, your neighbors, people who might fit that description? Nice, quiet, a little moody, kept to himself. Berkowitz from headquarters to Brooklyn Central booking. After my sources say he confessed to being the 44 killer. After he told them he was a killing machine, ordered by a voice speaking through a neighbor's dog, carry out his bloody outrages against young pretty women five minutes later is when everything happened when i got shot i I couldn't see anything i was totally blind i was totally you know full of blood david berkowitz 24 years old a postal worker walked out of his yonkers apartment last night turned the ignition key in his car and found himself surrounded by police well he said you got me In general, his neighbors describe him as basically nice, quiet, kept to himself, perhaps a little strange, perhaps a little moody. I didn't know he was a killer. I didn't know he looked nice. Our story begins with a young woman named Elizabeth Broder, who is also known as Betty, and she grew up in the Bedford Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn. My mouth ran away from me. Excuse me. (laughs) She was a spirited girl from a religious Jewish family, and her family really struggled to survive the Depression because they were a humble family living in poverty. Well, she fell in love with this guy named Tony Falco, and they ended up getting married. And this did not please her family at all. They were totally against it because Tony was Italian and a Gentile or an outsider, basically. So the two of them worked separate jobs and they managed to save some money up and together they managed to start a fish market in 1939. 
so Betty ends up giving birth to a daughter she named Rosalind. But shortly after the birth, things weren't going so well in the marriage, which resulted in Tony abandoning his family and leaving Betty for another woman. Wow, what a what a piece of shit. It they, seems like, like I mean, they were only <laughs> married for three years too. This was a rather short marriage, and the fish market ended up going broke and closing, and now Betty was left alone to raise Rosalind by herself. Being a single parent, being quite lonely, and struggling to make ends meet, Betty met and became involved with a man named Joseph Kleiman in 1950 because he was providing monetary support that she needed. Now, this guy was already married and is a huge piece of shit. Oh my God. Oh my goodness. He had an affair with Betty, got her pregnant, and this guy refused to pay for any type of child support and even vowed to leave her unless she got rid of the baby. All right. All right. All right. All right. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. This guy was, in his own words, quote, saddled with a wife who won't hear of a divorce, end quote. So, big piece of shit. Yeah, I was about to say, okay, that's that's something. That's definitely something. So, even before David was born, his mother had already arranged for his adoption. Her sadness of having to give up her child was somewhat mitigated, knowing that there was a good Jewish couple that was ready to adopt her son. David Berkowitz was born Richard David Falco in Brooklyn, New York, on June 1st, 1953. Which is interesting that he was named Falco. I'm guessing she did that because she was still married to Tony Falco. And it's pretty obvious she couldn't use Joseph Kleiman's last name. Makes sense. But with her newborn gone, Betty continued her affair with Joseph until he died of cancer in 1965. Oh, wow. So a few days after David's birth, he was adopted by Nathan and Pearl Berkowitz from the Bronx, and they reversed the order of his first and middle names. So that's how his name was changed from Richard David Falco to David Richard Berkowitz. So Nathan and Pearl were a childless couple who were extremely devoted to their new son. David Berkowitz described Nathan and Pearl as beautiful, loving parents. According to him, he had a normal childhood and he was a happy child, but his childhood took a dark turn when he learned that he was adopted. It was actually a slip of the tongue by Nathan, and when he heard the word adopted, David began to question his parents on what that meant. Well, Pearl and Nathan told David that his biological mother died giving birth to him and that his father was unable to care for him. Holy shit. Like, that's pretty fucked up to tell a child. Especially when it's not true. Right. My God. So this news completely traumatized David, and he recalled thinking, I must have killed her. But despite the swift assurance that they gave, telling him that he wasn't to blame for her death, it was already too late. He would go on to struggle with feelings of tremendous guilt for years to come. David was a loner growing up, and one thing that you repeatedly hear when discussing Berkowitz is how insanely lonely this guy was. His parents, although loving, weren't socially oriented. And from what I understand, they just weren't the social type. They were family-oriented, and they ran a small hardware store, and this kind of bled over in their relationship because David wasn't particularly socially oriented either. Same. (laughs) He was 
apparently very big for his age, which always made him feel like he was different or less attractive than others. So all through his youth, he was very uncomfortable around other people. Again, I'm here to say same. (laughs) Even out of my youth, I am not comfortable around other people. I'd rather not. Like, if you know me in real life, you know I just sit in my room and research homicide and play video games all day. (laughs) That's literally it. Well, because of this, he didn't have any friends. He had just too much trouble trying to talk or socialize with anyone. But he did have an outlet. He was an avid baseball player, and he was actually pretty good at the game. But his reputation was not so good. His neighbors remember him as a nice-looking boy who was difficult, spoiled, and had a violent streak. He was a bully who would physically assault the neighborhood kids for no apparent reason. All right, all right, all right, David. (laughs) He was reportedly very hyperactive and very difficult for Pearl and Nathan to control. So when David was four, he had a really big rock dropped on his head from one of the neighborhood kids. (laughs) Yeah, and when he was seven, he got hit by a fucking car. Oh my, oh my God, seven years old? Yeah, so the Son doctors, of a bitch. he did suffer a concussion, and the doctors apparently weren't sure if David had sustained any long term damage. Wow, okay. So this is also around the time that David really started to become aggressive, and he even killed his mother's pet bird by poisoning it. Where he got the poison, I don't know, but he poisoned the mom's bird out of jealousy because she paid too much attention to the bird and not to him. Holy shit. And he also began to burn bugs and other things. All right. (laughs) This is going in a wonderful direction so far. So it reminds me of Sid from Toy Story. Like, this kid was going buck wild. Bonkers. Journalist John Vincent Sanders writes, quote, David's childhood was somewhat troubled. Although of above-average intelligence, he lost interest in learning at an early age and began an infatuation with petty larceny and pyromania, end quote. Before David was born, Pearl had previously suffered from breast cancer, and she would continue to struggle with breast cancer in 1965 and again in 1967. Nathan hadn't kept David very well informed about the prognosis and the changes that David would see in his adoptive mother. So he was traumatized to see how badly and quickly Pearl was changing from the chemotherapy and the illness. 14-year-old David was completely devastated when Pearl died in the fall of 1967. Oh, damn. Now, before this, his parents tried to move out of their changing neighborhood into an enormous high-rise development called Co-op City. But unfortunately, by the time their apartment was ready, Pearl had already passed. So David and his father lived in this new apartment alone. And being closer to Pearl than he was with Nathan, his already tense relationship with his father became even more strained. One source said that Nathan would tell David things like he was a mistake. David felt like Pearl was the only one who understood him, like she cared about him and loved him. And now that she's gone, he's not finding that same connection with his father. So things were extremely awkward. Goodness, that's so much. David really began to deteriorate after Pearl's death. His grades plummeted. His faith in God was completely shaken. He began to imagine that her death was some part of some plan to destroy him. And he even became more and more introverted. David was only 14 at the time when Pearl died. And he finds out 
that he was adopted and blames himself for his birth mother's death. And now his adoptive mother has died. He doesn't have that good of a relationship with his father, and he's isolated socially. So it's easy to imagine how he could feel that God hated him and wanted to destroy him. God, that is some heavy shit. At a very young age. Like not, you know, and we say this every time, never trying to paint a pity party for the perpetrators and the stories that we talk about. But like, you can feel bad for this part. Like when he was a child, he was a young person and he had no control. I mean, that's a lot. And that's very sad. I see how detrimental that could have been. You I know? mean, every time we sit and we talk about serial killers or someone who has killed someone or done something, you know, their childhood actually does play a very huge part in who they end up becoming. Right. As it does with everybody. We we talk about nature versus nurture all the time. Right. But it's not just by the parents doing either. It's also by life as well. I don't think it's ever taken into account that life things that happen naturally can also help mold and shape a person not just the parents yeah because the 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 spectrum of life and what you experience is a lot bigger than just who your parents are that is true so in 1971 a few years after pearl passed away nathan remarried and david did not like this woman at all he was angry about this marriage and seeing nathan with his new wife He couldn't understand how his dad could love another woman and get married again. Like, Pearl was supposed to be the love of his life, and maybe he also felt that it was too soon after his, you know, mother's passing. Right, right. But either way, he was very angry and didn't want anything to do with his new stepmom. He didn't want a relationship with her, and he didn't want to show her any respect, and the tension was rising in the household. So when David turned 18, he wanted to escape his home life, and he joined the U.S. Army on June 23, 1971. He was active until 1974. He did manage to avoid being sent to fight in the Vietnam War, but instead he served in both Fort Knox and South Korea. He was an excellent marksman, surprisingly, particularly proficient with rifles. And at one point, he even wrote to a friend at home basically saying he's learned a lot in the military and these are skills that he would someday use. Oh, fuck. It's chilling if you think about it. It's chilling as fuck. Like, literally, you said that and just goose legs. Literal goose legs. Like, no. I don't like where this is going, Ray. I never like it. (laughs) Every time we sit here, I just, I don't like it. The slow, steady decline. It's like a roller coaster. Just, Oh, God. But during his time in the army, he briefly converted from Judaism to the Baptist faith, trying to find his path in life, and then he lost interest. He began to experiment with drugs like cocaine and acid. For reasons unknown, David was honorably discharged in June of 1974. So David goes back home, trying to figure out who he is, what he believes in, and he finds himself questioning what he wants to do with his life. And around this same time, Nathan and his new wife moved to a Florida retirement community, which was sparked by a robbery at Nathan's hardware store. So he just decided to retire, but this would leave David to drift, feeling absent of a real purpose or a goal. And basically the stepmom thought that David was this crazy asshole. And she was like, yeah, we're going to move to the retirement and we're going to leave him here. God, because on one hand, I'm like, you know what? 
you're not entirely wrong, bitch. He's kind of fucking crazy. Like, he's really fucking crazy, Like, clearly. I wonder if she yeah. could see something, you know? But, but still, though, like, even on that it's note... It's pretty fucked up. At a point in time, you cannot hold someone accountable for things that they have not yet done. Right. So it's like just leaving him behind and just, you know, fuck you, do your own thing. I mean, that's... It's kind of fucked up. You know, like there's yeah. there's there's two sides of this sword that I'm seeing right now. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. It's just, oh, fuck. Okay. okay. So David actually dreamed of starting his life, having a family and a nice house. And one source claims that he did have one relationship with a girl named Iris Gerhard. But this relationship was more fantasy on David's part because Iris only considered him as a friend. Ah, uh, I see. Now, he used his GI Bill and attended a few classes at the Bronx Community College, and he had a nighttime job as a security officer, but it's believed that this was to appease his dad more than anything else. Feeling particularly isolated and viewing himself as an outsider, he craved a connection, so he began to think about contacting his biological mother. Oh, wow. Did there come a point to where he realized that she wasn't dead? Or that she was still out there? Like, did that information come his way? Or, Well, he had been thinking about it for a while, but around Mother's Day in 1975, David found his birth mother, Betty Falco. He found some literature from the Adoptees Liberty Movement Association, which was founded in 1971 and worked to put adopted people back in touch with their birth family members and to know and understand their rights as an adoptee. But David had it in his heart to reconnect with his mother. His mother was found rather quickly, and David didn't hesitate to reach out to her. So initially, when he found the paperwork, because they advertised to put you in touch with anyone of your birth family, so that way you're connected to your original family. Right, right. But he was hoping that his mother would be alive and then they ended up finding out that his mother was alive and he found out on mother's day wow okay according to david in an interview with inside edition in 1999 he stated that she turned out to be a very nice person a typical jewish mother and they got along really well he also found out that he had a half sister and everyone hit it off you remember rosalind Mm mm-hmm So he visited his sister and his mother often. Once he received the information from his mother regarding her story, his birth and adoption, and basically all the details he wanted to know, this ended up making him feel worse than before. Like he felt he wasn't good enough and all the motherly figures in his life just ended up leaving him in one way or another. He also began to feel that his mother was impure because she had slept with a married man. Oh, man. So they ended up falling out of contact. It's also believed that he began to feel that he was just a throwaway child. Once he met his half-sister, Rosalind, he began to think about how all this time she wasn't given away and she was loved, and it made him furious. Oh, man, that's a tough one. I mean, with his perspective, I can understand. Like, I can put myself in that place mentally, and I can understand. Like, you know, there's here's my sibling, been with my family the whole time, but why was I the one that got sent away and given up? Like, you know, it, it's valid. It's yeah. valid. Like, I can easily grasp that, you know? It's just fucking sad. Betty and Rosalind did everything they could to make David feel welcome in their family. 
and for a while it worked, and David seemed happy in their company. But eventually, as I said, he drifted away from them, making up excuses for not coming to visit. His anger and frustration from feeling rejected by women, mixed with a bizarre fantasy life, started him down his road to violence. Having a relationship with someone just didn't happen for him, and the only sexual experience he ever had was with a sex worker in Korea. And unfortunately, he ended up contracting VD. Which I'm sure this didn't help his outlook in how he viewed women either. This is just painting such a fucked up picture. Like, we're not even that far into it. Yeah. And I'm already seeing all these... There's a little piece here, a little piece here, some feelings here that correlate with this situation over here. And it's it's just not looking good. Like, this really is not looking good. David's state of mind in November was very bleak, and it was very apparent when he wrote to his father in Florida. Quote, It's cold and gloomy here in New York, but that's okay because the weather fits my mood. Gloomy. Dad, the world is getting dark now. I can feel it more and more. The people... They are developing a hatred for me. You wouldn't believe how much some people hate me. Many of them want to kill me. I don't even know these people, but still they hate me. Most of them are young. I walk down the street and they spit and kick at me. The girls call me ugly and they bother me the most. The guys just laugh. Anyhow, things will soon change for the better. End quote. God, how sad. So, That's so sad. What the fuck? But here's the thing. David was known as the neighbor from hell. None of his neighbors liked him. They all said that he was a massive dick to people. He was constantly calling the cops on someone or someone was constantly calling the cops on him because he would get into fights with the neighbors. Okay, see, David, I'm going to retract my last statement about what I said about it seems sad. It was so <laughs> sad. I'm just going to retract that really quick because obviously I don't think it's necessarily correct to assume that people are going to like you and want to be around you when you're a raging, blubbering dickhead. But this letter actually was a cry for help. After writing the letter, he locked himself in his small apartment for almost a whole month, and he would only leave for food. He nailed blankets over the windows and wrote strange things on the walls and marker. He would write things like, in this hole lives the wicked king. Another was, kill for my master. And even, I turn children into killers. Holy shit. Okay, okay. Y'all y'all can call me out all day long. I've gone a little bit of back and forth in the last <laughs> five minutes because at first I'm like, oh, man, that's pretty fucking sad. I don't know. I hate that. And then I'm like, David, you shouldn't be a dick. Maybe people would like you if he wasn't such a dick. And then with what you just said, I'm like, oh, fuck, still not having, you know, not trying to excuse anything that this man goes on to do. Not trying to do that. I will make that point a hundred times. Right. But... Hearing that, it's like, fuck, you was like, it kind of paints a little bit of David Berkowitz's personal hell. Right. And he's clearly suffering. Like, again, we're we're not ever going to try to, like, excuse anything that he did. But you, you just can't hear something like that and not think, damn, like, he really actually needed fucking help. Like, clearly he was suffering. And that just that just makes me kind of sad. So I'm just kind of I'm just kind of back and forth. My perspective, it, it, it's too much. It's too much <laughs> right now. I'm just I'm just going to say it. I'm going to let you continue. I should also mention that sometime in 1975, he met some people who were into the occult and Satanism. Oh, fuck. 
So he bought himself a satanic Bible and was really beginning to immerse himself with talks of demons and all that stuff. He even admitted in an interview I saw where he talked about carrying out some sort of rituals as well. So he's really into this and horror movies and stuff like that. And you have to imagine when someone is that isolated and they're going through things like that. And then they find an outlet like this. Um, it's not always so, a not, good not thing. Everyone, not everyone is cut out for certain paths that other people can. You know what I mean? Right, and right. I think that um, I think that mentally the talk at the time with it being demons and, and dark and, and spiritual and all that other well, stuff. Well, like, if you think about it, it really compounds because clearly even before he got into all of that, we're seeing an image in which, and I've said it like three times, but he's he's suffering. Yeah. He's deteriorating mentally you know he's locking himself in his apartment and he's writing all this weird shit he's clearly not in a good state of mind he's not in a stable state of mind so when you take something like satanism and i say that lightly because we've said it before like if this is your first episode you're hearing from us then just let me elaborate when we talk about satanism in the context of what a lot of these people do, we in no way think that is a true reflection of Satanism or people that practice Satanism. Right. But it's like he took that and then you compound that outlet with how not okay his mind is. That's not really going to create something good. I well, don't think. I don't know if that makes sense. But if, like, If I'm correct, I believe that Satanism throughout the years has obviously evolved into what we know today. And a lot of the time... Back then, you had the satanic panic going on. Right. You right. had a lot of people that were feeding into this, oh, I'm weird and different and dark and I'm going to scare everyone around me. You it's know? a and shock factor it, thing it versus like right. an actual spiritual path. Right. right. It, right. it definitely was. But, but that has evolved over a long amount of time. You know, people have looked at the documents of, like, say, the Satanic Bible or writings of even LaVey, and they've been able to go, okay, this is bullshit, and this is what we're going to continue with. Right, you know? right, so, right. So when we talk about Satanism, of course, like he said, you know, it's no offense to our Satanist listeners or our atheist listeners or, you know, whatever, but um, this is just what it was like at that time. Right, right. And also, too, I'll just add in, because we love hearing from you guys, if you are listening to this episode and you are a practitioner of Satanism, then by all means, feel free to send us a DM, send us an email. Like, if you would like to add your two cents, um, maybe you, you may feel like we're missing something, then we love being educated. So, I mean, For hey, sure. if if you have the knowledge... Don't be afraid to share it with us. We all love being enlightened here. You get enlightened <laughs> through learning. That's what it's all about. I mean, you know, I can just see like with what you're saying and I'll I'll let you continue after this. But it's like I just see it to where you have an already deteriorating mental capacity and right. mental state. And he's clearly suffering and just going way downhill, like way into himself, not in a good way. And then I just don't think that that was the best outlet. Like I just see to where it could compound connect and then it just you know forest fire right i just don't see that being good i see him looking at satanism as an outlet maybe that kind of intensified it kind of the fueled shit his that, fantasy world that's the word i was looking for it kind of fueled his fantasy world you took it right out of my mouth but that's that's the point that i was making ultimately at the start of this tangent <laughs> 
So David later claimed to psychiatrists that he was, quote, giving in to the demons with hopes that they would stop tormenting him if he did what they asked, end quote. Oh, son of a bitch. On Christmas Eve of 1975, he was mentally and emotionally in a state of crisis. That early evening, he took a large hunting knife with a four-inch blade and drove around for hours looking for a young female victim. Oh my god, holy shit, that just came out of nowhere. And the demons would let him know when he found the right woman. Holy shit. So he returned to Co-op City, the area that he had lived previously, sharing the solitary apartment with Nathan after Pearl's death, right? Right, right. And around 6.45 p.m., he saw a random woman leaving a grocery store, and David's demons ordered him to kill her, telling him she has to be sacrificed. What the fuck? What the fuck? He caught the woman off guard and plunged the hunting knife into her back and shoulder over and over. And luckily, she was wearing like a puffy jacket that helped take some of the blow. But he was completely shocked by her reaction. And he actually said, quote, I stabbed her and she didn't do anything. She just turned and looked at me, end quote. Holy shit. He stabbed her and he didn't understand why she was screaming so much. He said, I wasn't going to rob her or touch her or rape her. I just wanted to kill her. David. Right. David. David. Listen. Listen, my guy. If you fucking stab someone, chances are they're going to look at you and scream. They're going to scream. Holy shit. Holy shit, David. Once she looked at him, she began to scream and it scared David and he took off. Apparently, the police tried to verify this story, but they were unsuccessful and the victim was never identified, but suspected that she did either succumb to her injuries. Um, one source said that she survived because she's just not counted in his victim count at all. Right. So we don't really know who this woman is. Right. But that same day, he saw another young woman that he was ordered to kill. And he hid the knife and attacked her from behind, stabbing her in the torso and in the head. He collapsed her lung as well. And so, he did this on the same day. Yes. That he had just attacked this other woman. Yes. So 15-year-old Michelle Foreman was seriously injured, but she used all of her might and fought back. So... I'm, he attacked so a 15-year-old. I was about to say she was 15. Yeah. And he just goes up to her and stabs her in her fucking torso in her head. Yes. David. David. Holy shit. Her screaming scared David off and she was able to make it to one of the apartment buildings for help. She had six stab wounds from the hunting knife and she was hospitalized due to her injuries. Because this was a random attack and David had no links to the victim... Coupled with the fact that neither of them saw their attacker, David would avoid detection for now. One source claimed that both of these young women were actually together walking under a bridge, but either way, the attack seemed to pacify David's demons for the time being. He thought that he was finally able to relax, and he went out for a burger and fries. I am fucking blown. Like, he's escalated so fucking quickly. Yes. From... Him just being in his apartment, being isolated, you know, his mind's crumbling, and then it's, it's just like hopscotch. It's like mental deterioration, Satanism, stabbing women in public. Yeah. 
the, where the fuck did that come from? That was so... Ugh. So it's believed by professionals that the timing of these stabbings were significant because Christmas is a family event. And with David feeling so isolated and alone and being personally estranged from his family, this was thought of as him lashing out over the things that he felt that he didn't have. My God. So after the two Christmas Eve attacks, David went back to his security guard job at IBI Security. He moved from his tiny Bronx apartment in January to a two-family home in Yonkers owned by Jack and Nan Kassara, where he wanted a two-year lease and he paid a $200 security deposit. But there was one problem with this new place. The Kassara's German Shepherd was a very noisy dog and would howl frequently. Like, he would bark all throughout the night, from what I understand. Mm -hmm. And in response, the neighborhood dogs would then howl back. And in David's mind, demons lived inside the dogs, and their howling was the method they used to order David to go hunting for blood. The blood of young women. So Berkowitz snapped. He is quoted saying, quote, I'd come home to Caligny Avenue. It would begin then, the howling. On my days off, I heard it all night, too. It made me scream. I used to scream out begging for the noise to stop, and it never did, end quote. He was also quoted saying, quote, the demons never stopped. I couldn't sleep. I had no strength to fight. I could barely drive. Coming home from work one night, I almost killed myself in the car. I needed to sleep. The demons wouldn't give me any peace, end quote. My fucking God. So, like, he's really, like, he's mentally just complete crisis. I am, like, I have chills. Like, literally, I have chills. After three months of living in the Casaras house, he moved out, never asking for his security deposit back. The Casaras had become evil in David's mind. He explains, quote, When I moved in the Casaras, they seemed very nice and quiet, but they tricked me. They lied. I thought they were members of the human race. They weren't. Suddenly, the Casaras began to show up with the demons. They began to howl and cry out, blood and death. They called out the names of the masters. The Blood Monster, John Wheaties, General Jack Cosmo, end quote. So as David's fantasies developed, Jack Kassara became General Jack Cosmo, who David considered the commander-in-chief of the devil dogs roaming the streets of New York. (laughs) I am fucking blown. Bitch, this is wild. Wild. This is wild. Yeah. Yeah. The demons had a constant need for blood, which David was ordered or forced to replenish with this murderous, like, attack on people. I just don't even know what to do with that, because I said it in the intro. Like, what do I do with that information? (laughs) Right, I I said it in the intro that I don't really know a lot about David Berkowitz, obviously. Right. Uh, I know that he shot people. I know he's from New York, and obviously he's incredibly infamous, but he's not a killer, that I have in-depthly researched or, like, read about or watched things about. I know a a good bit about a lot of others, but he's kind of in that gray area for me. Right. I had no fucking idea that this man was so delusional to the point that he's thinking that, like, fucking dogs in his neighborhood are possessed by the devil and they're howling and barking are actually commands for him to kill. Yes. That is fucking crazy. This is this is just fucking bonkers, David. 
David, you're bonkers. 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 Oh, Squidward. He pops in every now and then. He had to because it like Squidward and I both think that that is just fucking crazy. Like I'm genuinely speechless almost. So David eventually moved into an apartment house at 35 Pine Street in Yonkers. But this house also had dogs nearby. Jesus fucking Christ. And this is where we find Sam Carr and his black Labrador, Harvey. Sam was a retired city worker who lived in Yonkers with his wife and children. I had a little difficulty with the timeline here as this incident seemed to have happened while David was committing his crime spree. So some people believe this incident happened before the murders. And some people believe this all happened during the murders, in which for that, I will let you know when this incident is believed to have happened. Like later on when we get into the sauce, I'll let you know when this is believed to have happened. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, But we're going to talk about it first before we get into the actual murders themselves. The key point to know here is that David gave up his hunting knife and got his hands on a 44 caliber handgun. He visited his dad in Florida in May of 1976, and instead of going back home immediately, he then drove all the way out to Houston, Texas, where he met with an old Army buddy, and this friend was named Billy Dan Parker. David stayed with him for a few weeks, and before returning home, he told his friend that he was feeling vulnerable to drive all the way back to New York by himself. So his friend bought the gun that David pointed out and three boxes of ammunition at a pawn shop. Which is ironic because David had firearms at his house. So this is showing some forethought. Almost like he's wanting to get his hands on a weapon that can't be traced back to him. So now we're moving on back to the story of Sam. But that's how he got the gun. Got you, G. And I'm guessing this is the gun that he's gonna go fucking bonkers with. Yes. Oh, God. Okay. Okay. So Sam received an anonymous letter complaining about Harvey's barking. He received another letter on April 19th in the same handwriting as the first letter that read, quote, I have asked you kindly to stop that dog from howling all day long, yet he continues to do so. I pleaded with you. I told you how this is destroying my family. We have no peace, no rest. Now I know what kind of person you are and what kind of family you are. You are cruel and inconsiderate. You have no love for any other human beings. You're selfish, Mr. Carr. My life is destroyed now. I have nothing to lose anymore. I can see that there shall be no peace in my life or my family's life until I end yours. End quote. Jesus fucking Christ. Imagine getting that letter in your mailbox, dude. Like, that is so left field. So Sam and his wife called the police, but all the police could do was listen sympathetically. Ten days later, David tried to kill the demon lurking in Harvey with a Molotov cocktail. He threw a Molotov cocktail at Harvey. I just don't. I'm. If you're not familiar with what a Molotov cocktail is, it's basically a bottle of like really high alcoholic spirits with a cloth down into into the liquid mm-hmm. and then you light the other end and when you throw it and the bottle breaks it becomes a huge explosion right right so, and he just fucking threw one at, right oh my god but it fizzled out and it didn't work thank um, goodness so he shit. then shot harvey uh, <sighs> now sam heard the gunshot coming from his backyard and he rushed out the back door discovering his wounded labrador bleeding on the ground A man wearing jeans and a yellow shirt was running away from the scene. 
Sam rushed Harvey to the veterinarian, where luckily he was saved. Oh, thank goodness. Holy shit. So Sam called up the police again, and this time, patrolman Peter Intervallo and Thomas Chamberlain examined the letters and began an investigation. Now, I'll explain as we go along, but during David's killing spree, he wrote two infamous letters. In one of these letters, he calls himself the Son of Sam. Oh, fuck. Now, through my research, I have found that the reason he called himself that was because in David's delusions, he believed Sam Carr was a host of a powerful demon that was also named Sam that worked for General Jack Cosmo. So when he called himself the son of Sam, he was referring to the demon inside Sam Carr. He also believed that only God could destroy Sam at Armageddon because at various times in David's head, Sam was the devil. So essentially, in a way, he's calling himself the son of the devil by signing the letter as the son of Sam. My God. So keep in mind the things that he was writing on the walls in his apartment, which called himself a wicked king and he turns children into killers. So perhaps he did view himself as evil. But another source said that he was merely talking about Harvey being the son of Sam. Now, David also apparently warned people that they should take him seriously, saying things like, quote, This Sam and his demons have been responsible for a lot of killing, end quote. I am just... And that's why a lot of people think that these that the incident with Sam Carr happened during the murders. I... This is fucking wild. Like, this is so much significantly actually more wild than I expected. Like, this man was truly just on another fucking level of delusion. Yeah. Like, this is... It's scary. Like, this is truly scary. Now, before the murders began, there was another big thing to note about David. He set over 1,488 fires in the city of New York between 1974 and 1977. And he kept a diary of each one. Holy shit, over 1,400 fires. Mm -hmm. He referred to himself as the Phantom of the Bronx. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. (laughs) (laughs) Insert organ music, Jesus. I mean, I'm still just, I'm not going to say it like a hundred times. I'm still just, I was caught way off guard with a lot of this. Like, he was actually carrying out what many psychologists believe to be called a control fantasy. I can't say I'm familiar with the term. Okay, Robert Ressler, in his book, Whoever Fights Monsters, he explained and said, quote, Most arsonists like the feeling that they are responsible for the excitement and violence of a fire. With the simple act of lighting matches, they control events in society that are not normally controlled. They orchestrate the fire, the screaming arrival and deployment of the fire trucks and firefighters, the gathering crowds, the destruction of property, and sometimes of people, end quote. Got you. Jeez. 
Jeez, jeez, jeez. So he sees, you know, he's wanting an external type of response, and he sees that by lighting these fires, he you can know, achieve that. He can achieve that. He can he can get the firefighters to come out, and he can get people to come look, and he can manipulate the entire situation. God, God, the level of just utterly unhinged. Neighbors not only noticed the strange occurrence of multiple fires happening in the area, but they also reported a large influx of neighborhood dogs being killed. Little did they know this would be nothing but a precursor of what was to come. When the Son of Sam first struck in the summer of 1976, no one ever thought it was a serial killer when the shootings began. This killing spree would go on to completely terrify the people of New York. And the story of the murders would gain international press coverage. The perpetrator was dubbed the 44 caliber killer after his weapon of choice. On the evening of July 29, 1976, 18-year-old Donna Loria and her friend 19-year-old Jody Valenti had just finished hanging out playing backgammon at a local bar. They were sitting in Jody's two-door Oldsmobile parked near the entrance of Donna's apartment building at 2860 Beer Avenue in the Bronx. It was 1 o'clock in the morning, and they were engaged in a conversation before they parted ways for the night. Donna's parents briefly stopped by the car on their way home because they were on their way home after a fun evening out, and when they saw Jody's car, they exchanged pleasantries and reminded Donna that it was very late and to come upstairs. Donna promised she would. After her parents went inside, Donna and Jody had just finished talking. Donna said goodnight to Jody and was just about to open the door when a man approached the car. She said something to the effect of, who is this guy and what does he want? It was David. And before anyone could really react, he pulled out a Charter Arms 44 caliber bulldog handgun from a paper bag, squatted down into a firing position, and fired into the car five times. Oh my fucking god donna was shot in the neck and arm and she fell out of the car hitting the pavement she died immediately my god my jody god. screamed as a bullet struck her thigh and she fell forward leaning on the horn while the man continued to pull the trigger even though the chamber was now empty now donna's father mike loria the minute he closed the front door to their home he heard the shots Oh, my God. He then quickly ran toward Jody's car, and he found Jody leaning on the car horn, screaming. And Mike accompanied his daughter on the way to the hospital, hoping the doctors could save his daughter. But sadly, she was already dead. Donna Ann Loria was born October 25, 1957, in Brooklyn, New York. She was the middle child of three and the only daughter of Rose and Michael Loria. Donna was working as an EMT before her death, and she was buried at Calvary Cemetery in Woodside, New York. Her mother, Rose, has since commented in an interview saying, quote, I have a mass said for my daughter every anniversary since the day she was killed, every birthday since the day she was killed, end quote. Oh, my God. That just... <sighs> Jody survived, but she was hysterical when arriving at the hospital. Jody was able to give a description of the killer. It was a husky white man with curly hair, and Jody estimated he was about 30 years old. She had never seen the man before until that day, and she knew it wasn't one of Donna's ex-boyfriends. In her semi-shocked state, she did the best she could to describe the man. It was at night, and everything happened so fast, so it's amazing that she even got 
any amount of information. Right. I just, I couldn't imagine how fucking traumatizing that would be. But they did manage to take a sketch, like a, a sketch of her description. Gotcha. Gotcha. In a 2016 interview with the New York Post, Jody commented on what her life was like after the attack and said, quote, It took probably about six years of my life to be able to get in a car at night. It took a long time to be able to deal with the sounds of popping fireworks and stuff like that. But I faced my fears, end quote. Good fucking grief, man. On the way home after the attack, David sung a song to himself. He had completed what the demons in his head told him to do. The neighbors reported that they saw a yellow Volkswagen parked a few meters back from Jody's car, but it was gone by the time the police showed up. The police couldn't find a motive for the attack. The two young women had been the victim of an apparently random crime, so the police ended up theorizing that this could have been a possible mafia hit with a case of mistaken identity because the area of the North Bronx was a popular Italian area. Gotcha. So the shooting didn't earn a headline in the papers, which angered David. The day before David murdered Donna Loria, he had actually quit his job as a nighttime security guard, and he started to work as a taxi driver. So I guess during his free time, when he's not murdering someone, he was working and laying low. We discussed how after he would attack someone, he would feel like the demons would leave him alone. Right, right. Well, he later claimed that he didn't want to kill Donna, but the demons forced him to shoot. Once he had done it, he felt pressure and exhaustion from doing the job well. He claimed that Sam was so pleased and promised Donna to him as a bride. What Sam had fuck? apparently told David that Donna would someday rise from the dead to join him, and that's what he believed. Holy shit, David. Berkowitz was later classified by the defense psychiatrist as a paranoid schizophrenic, and they believed that David's difficulties relating to people drove him further into isolation. Now, the psychologists say this isolation was like a breeding ground for David's wild fantasies, and eventually these fantasies crowded out reality, and he lived in a world that was only populated by these demons that his mind created. They also said that as his state of mind continued to decline... This tension would grow inside of him, and it was only released when he attacked someone. So for a short period of time, the attacks would relieve his tension, but inevitably, the tension would begin to increase again, and the cycle would repeat itself. So in August of 1976, David walked into the Westchester County Morgue, and he was disappointed that nobody recognized him, as if someone should have known who he was. At the morgue. And he actually admitted later on to police that at this point in time, he wished he had a machine gun. On the night of October 23, 1976, three months after Donna's senseless murder, 20-year-old Carl DeNaro had a few beers with his friends at a bar in Queens. In a few days, he would be entering the Air Force with plans to carry out at least four years of service. He really wanted to spend time and party with his buddies since it would be a while before he saw them again. And at this party was a girl, 18-year-old Rosemary Keenan. And he knew her from college. And some sources say that this was his girlfriend, but they were basically on a date at this party. So the party broke up after 2.30 a.m. And Rosemary and Carl left the bar and drove to a secluded spot for some alone time at Lover's Lane in the District of Queens. Out of nowhere, the passenger side window exploded as David pulled out his 44 caliber and fired it five times into the car. Oh, fuck. Now, the bullets had missed Rosemary, 
and Carl yelled at her to drive and basically said, let's get out of here. Completely terrified, Rosemary drove away and they returned to the bar. Now, Carl told CBS News that he said, quote, I don't feel good, end quote, and rested his head on the table. And when he did that, blood spilled out of his head and he had been shot in the head and didn't know it. Oh, my. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So he was rushed to the hospital, obviously. But the the recoil on this gun made David's aiming really inaccurate because only one of the five bullets hit Carl in the back of his skull. He did survive the attack, but he had to undergo surgery to put a metal plate in his head to replace the portion of his skull that was damaged. And Rosemary, though some report that she was killed in the attack, she survived uninjured. Oh, my, my God. Carl had shoulder-length hair and softer facial features, and it's believed that he was mistaken for a girl by Berkowitz. And again, this shooting, though unexplained and seemingly random, was thought to be an isolated incident. And CBS News claimed that initially police were suspicious toward Carl himself, although I wasn't able to find the reason why that was. Yeah, that would be crazy. Like, how did he shoot himself in the back of the head? So either either Berkowitz was trying to hit Rosemary or he thought Carl was a girl and shot Carl. I mean, either way, he just picked a car and started fucking shooting. Right. That is scary. Like, I could not imagine just sitting in my car and then it just starts fucking raining bullets. Yeah. Like, out of nowhere. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. A little more than a month later, in the evening hours of November 27, 1976, in Queens, 16-year-old Donna DeMassey and her 18-year-old friend Joanne Lomino were walking home from the movie theater. It was around midnight when they started to head home, so it's pretty late in the evening. And as they're walking, they notice this man following them, and they both agree to try to walk faster and lose him. Well, after some time, they thought they lost him because they couldn't see him anymore. Oh, fuck. Once they got to Joanne's house, they were standing at the door for a moment while Joanne was looking for her keys. And one source said that David approached the girls, starting to ask something like, do you know where, like he was about to ask for directions? But then he pulled a gun from beneath his jacket and opened fired on both of them. Both of the girls were hit once, and the other three shots were fired, missed, and hit the side of the building. Hearing screaming, Joanne's family runs outside to find both of the injured girls on the front porch. One local nearby claimed they saw a man running away holding a gun. Now, one of the bullets had passed through Donna's body. One source said she was shot through the base of her neck within a quarter inch of her spine before it exited. Joanne was not so lucky because one of the bullets shattered her lower spine. And she survived, but she would now live her life as a paraplegic. Like, this man is just going out without giving a fuck. And he's just opening fire on people. Mm-hmm. Like, that... Scary is not the word. Scary is not the word. Like, clearly he does not give a fuck. At all. I, I can't, man. My... God. 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 <laughs> So things seemed to have quieted down for two months. It was now 1977 and people were wishing for good things for the new year. But unfortunately, the new year only brought more shootings. 
Shortly after midnight on January 30, 1977, 26-year-old Christine Freund from Austria and her fiancé, 30-year-old John Deal, left the wine gallery in Queens. They had enjoyed seeing the movie Rocky. They had dinner, and one source said that they were headed to a nightclub that evening. So they were walking towards John's car. They had been dating for seven years. They were newly engaged. They hadn't even told their parents yet, and they were enjoying a night out on the town. They were so absorbed in each other that they didn't notice anyone watching them. Goose legs. They finally reached John's Pontiac Firebird, which was parked near the Forest Hills Long Island Railroad Station. They were sitting in the car for a minute or two, waiting for the heat to warm up, and suddenly there's the loud sound of glass exploding around them. Three shots were fired, but two shots had struck Christine in her temple and her neck. Jesus. Oh. John managed to drive away from the area, but after the attack, he saw that Christine was slumped forward with a bullet wound in her head. So he rested her head on the driver's seat and ran for help. He was trying to flag down passing cars, but that didn't work. But some people in nearby homes heard the shots and called 911. Now, Christine was taken to St. John's Hospital, but she sadly died from her injuries. Now, John survived with minor injuries, but he was absolutely devastated. I literally could not imagine. Like, he just lost his partner. Yeah. On a night that they were celebrating. Like, that, oh my god, that's another layer of just sadness. It is fucking sad. Now, neither of them had seen their attacker, and the attack just took away the love of his life. So, you know, that's like, to me... That was the the biggest, like, oh, shit moment. I just couldn't. I really seriously couldn't imagine it. Because, you know, as I was researching this, I was sitting there, like, trying to think, like, from the victim's perspectives and trying to find, you know, quotes or comments from them. And to lose the love of your life within, like that. within minutes. I just, my God. I wasn't able to find any information about her life, but Christine Freund was born May 8, 1950 in Salzburg, Austria, and was laid to rest in Linden Hill United Methodist Cemetery in Ridgewood, New York. 43-year-old Detective Sergeant Joseph Coffey, you're going to love this. He's described as a big, handsome Irishman known for his toughness and dedication. Now, Coffey and Captain Joe Borelli started to work on this latest homicide, and they had two theories. That the killer was either some rando psycho or someone who had something personal against Christine. Now, Joseph Coffey would see that the bullets used in this attack were uncommon. They had come from a powerful, large-caliber gun. And in his investigation, when he discovered that Christine's murder matched other assaults on Donna Loria Donna DeMassey and Joanne Lamino, he had a hunch that they were dealing with one person, one lone psycho that was packing a 44 caliber, stalking women in various parts of the city with long dark hair, and he also shown a pattern with attacking people in Lover's Lane's areas. As Coffee's investigation began to shed light on these attacks, a 16-man homicide task force was formed under Captain Borelli at the NYPD. Ballistics reported that the weapon used in these attacks was a 44 caliber Charter Arms Bulldog revolver, which again is an unusual weapon that was not common because this particular gun was originally fashioned for Sky Marshals. 
So the gun was powerful indeed, but it was made in such a way that sky marshals could fire this gun on an airplane and it wouldn't penetrate the fuselage. So they began to probe into the background of the murders and the victims involved, but the police weren't able to find any suspect on record, nor could they find anything in common between the victims to link them, to either link them to one another or a third party. But they could see some sort of connection between these shootings, and they began to believe that they weren't isolated incidents as the killer's pattern began to emerge. David had shot six people and killed two women at this point, and his confidence began to grow. He was emboldened by what he had done, so he began to grow even more reckless. So nearly two months later, on March 8, 1977, at 7.30 in the evening... 20-year-old Virginia Voskarishian, I'm sorry if I butchered that, was walking on her way home to Exeter Street from the Continental Avenue subway station. She was a sophomore at Columbia University and was attending classes at Bernard College in Manhattan. She was completely unaware that David was following her. She was near 4 Dartmouth Street in Forest Hills Gardens when David took out his gun and shot her at point-blank range. Virginia was approached from the opposite direction she was walking, so Berkowitz just walked right up to her, and when they were close enough, he pulled out his gun and aimed it at her. She instinctively raised her books in front of her face to try to protect herself, but the bullet went through the books and lodged in her brain, and Virginia (sighs) died immediately. Oh my god. Oh my fucking god. Virginia Voskarishim was born September 14, 1956, in Sofia, Bulgaria. She was a very talented and hardworking young woman who had fled Bulgaria with her family in 1968. Virginia was described by her loved ones as a pretty young woman that was very popular and had a lot of friends. Her older brother, Deke, said, quote, she was easy to get along with and she had a great personality, end quote. She loved music, reading, art, and fashion. She also spoke five languages and her family believed she could have become a translator. Besides being a full-time student in college, she also worked in a shop at the JFK airport. She was buried in Maple Grove Cemetery in Kew Gardens, New York. Now, as David fled the scene, he almost collided with a man who had witnessed the whole thing. And David goes, hi, mister, and then continues to run off. Okay. Now get this shit. An officer spotted the running man from his patrol car. But when they heard on the radio that a woman had been shot on Dartmouth Street, they abandoned trying to go after some random suspicious man running away and immediately raced to the crime scene. But what they would find would take its toll emotionally. Lawrence D. Klausner, in his book Son of Sam, quotes Joe Borelli on the aftermath of this particular crime, and he said, quote, If you watch detectives at any homicide, you'll notice that they go about their jobs unemotionally. They didn't want to look at her. They knew it was senseless. She was someone beautiful, and she was laying under the sheet. A bullet in her face had destroyed her. It began to grab at them, in the guts, and they just turned away. These were veterans, and they couldn't take it. End quote. Oh, my. Oh, the fucking goose legs, goose legs. I got goose legs and I don't like him. So during Virginia's autopsy, pathologists confirmed the bullet that penetrated Virginia's skull was a 44 caliber when they removed it. And this solidified the police's suspicions that they were dealing with a serial killer. 
They did a forensic comparison in ballistics and found that the same weapon killed both Christine and Virginia. Now, keep in mind, ballistics could only do so much, and a lot of the time the findings were inconclusive because of the type of weapon that was used. The use of this particular gun made it very hard for forensics because the ballistics of the bullet coming out of the gun was very limited. Like I said, you could shoot this gun inside of an airplane and it would it would kill the person in front of you, but it wouldn't go through the airplane. So it didn't shoot like a regular gun with regular propulsion. And I should also mention that the site of Virginia's murder was less than half a block from where Christine and John were attacked. They had finally found solid links between the victims. So at a press conference on March 10th, 1977, New York City Police Commissioner Michael Codd announced that they were looking for a serial shooter. And the same 44 caliber pistol had been used in several shootings targeting young women with medium to long dark hair. Cod also stated that the only description of the suspect was that of a white male, 25 to 30 years old, 6 feet tall, medium build, with dark hair. Now, Berkowitz had now gotten the headlines that he craved and was named the 44 caliber killer at this point. So the media exploded with this story, publishing every detail and speculation of the case. David began to watch the news daily and even began to keep newspaper clippings as trophies as he was very proud of what he had done. He was really enjoying the drama and the attention, like that external response that I was telling you about. Right, I just, I can't. Fear began to spread throughout the city of New York. People began to restrain themselves and their children from being out in the evening or going out for late night dates. Women began to cut their hair into short pixie cuts and many women even dyed their hair blonde, hoping this would keep them from being the next victim. Hair salons were packed and busy because every woman in the city was trying to change how they looked. Oh, my God. Blonde wigs were also selling out everywhere. Businesses were losing tons of money because people weren't going out to bars or dance clubs anymore. Sheer terror swept through New York like a plague. And you have to imagine it like this. Around that time, crime rates were already pretty high. But these series of shootings really stood out from the norm, and it truly put fear into the hearts of everyone. I can easily see why you have someone that's literally randomly just fucking opening fire on people. Like, holy shit, I would be terrified of that. Terrified. April 14th, 1977, Deputy Inspector Timothy Dowd was given the job of organizing the Operation Omega Task Force and staffing it with highly experienced men to catch the killer. The task force ended up being boosted in numbers. They were originally a team of 16, but they increased to over three to 400 detectives. Oh my God, that's a huge jump. So they were charged with investigating the crimes and finding this guy before he killed again. Like, they brought detectives in from all over around New York in, like, different boroughs and stuff like that. Gotcha. It got so, really serious. Right. So they had people in uniform on the street. They had detectives, you know, trying to look into this. But being assigned to the Omega Task Force was considered to be an honor. Catching the culprit would mean tremendous awards for the detectives that were involved, which was an extra incentive to put in a harder effort and long hours. Now, long hours that unfortunately brought about extremely frayed nerves. I, 
I couldn't imagine. The detectives would sometimes bicker and fight over the little things. Relationships with their wives and children became extremely strained. Caffeine and alcohol was increased. <laughs> I couldn't. Im- I could not imagine. I seriously couldn't imagine. Cots were put in the Omega headquarters so officers could grab a few hours of sleep before they started again. Like they were around the clock working so, on this. Like especially at this point in the story with what you're saying, David Berkowitz quite literally had this entire fucking area just freaking shit. Yes. Freaking shit. I can't, I can't, I cannot. I will say, my friend, and I, we usually do say this when you cover something that I'm not familiar with, but wow, did this turn out to be way worse than I thought it would be. <laughs> Good job. You've taken my hope in people away yet again. <laughs> but several very talented officers were brought in. In addition to Captain Joe Borelli, there was Sergeant Joseph Coffey and Detective Redmond Keenan, whose daughter was Rosemary Keenan. Carl's date. Oh. So all of these detectives were emboldened with a strong sense of mission to find this guy. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, this operation cost nearly $90,000 a day to run. A day. A day. The task force made extensive efforts to find the killer, including tracking down yellow Volkswagen cars because an eyewitness had reported that exact same car at one of the shootings. And they also were trying to locate the owners of thousands of 44 caliber bulldog revolvers. Thousands of people were interviewed to no avail. Barely a month after being dubbed the 44 caliber killer, David Berkowitz would strike again in the Bronx. On April 17, 1977, parked in front of 1878 Hutchinson River Parkway, just two blocks away from where Donna Loria was murdered the previous year, 18-year-old Valentina Suriani and her boyfriend, 20-year-old Alexander Essel, were sitting in his Mercury Montego at 3 a.m. One source said they were talking and making out. They had supposedly just gone out for a movie. Alexander was taking Valentina home, and they decided to park somewhere and have a moment together. Right, right. Suddenly, David ran up to the car, put his hand on the hood, and fired four times into the windshield. He shot each of them twice. Two bullets struck Valentina in the head, killing her instantly, and the next two shots hit the top of Alexander's head. The shots were heard by a neighbor, who immediately called the police, And when they were found by police, Alexander was rushed to Jacoby Hospital, where he would sadly die two hours later. Valentina Francesca Suriani was born in the Bronx on November 24, 1958. She was an aspiring model and actress who attended Lehman College. She was buried at Old St. Raymond Cemetery in the Bronx. Alexander Essel was born in Manhattan, New York on July 26, 1957. At the time of his death, he was working as a tow truck operator. He was buried in Fairview Memorial Park and Mausoleum in Fairview, New Jersey. The first officer to arrive at the scene found a white envelope in the street next to the car, and it was addressed to Captain Joe Borelli. This was a direct message from the killer, and he was professing his name to be the son of Sam. And that concludes part one of David Berkowitz. Holy 
fuck. Holy fuck, Ray. Now, before you start to worry, I do want to say that part two, we're going to start with what was in that letter. Oh, okay, cool. And then I can't stand of... you. You had me on the, I'm on the edge of my seat. I am on the edge of my seat, and this is what you do to me and the rest of us listening. Yes. Oh. It's called a cliffhanger, my darling. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? I can't talk shit, though. Like, look at what I did with Matthew Hoffman, goodness right. gracious, which I am not even going to go down that rabbit hole. I'm glad we're done talking about him, but like... You've taken me for a ride. But I do want to say I'm really excited for us to get to part two. I found the entire letter. That he wrote. Both of them. Oh, wow. Because in certain documentaries that I watched and certain sources that I read online, they only give you like small snippets of the letter. Like this is a little bit of it here. This is a little bit of it here. Right, right. I found the full letter for both of them so we're going to get into both of the letters we're going to get into you know the the remaining murders which i believe if i'm not mistaken there was only one more murder after this gotcha Um, gotcha. but we will get into all of that and you know wrapping it up you know how the sentencing goes all that other fun stuff we're gonna finish it out next yeah we're we're totally gonna finish it out but i hope that you guys enjoyed learning a little bit about berkowitz um i mean you definitely did the damn thing you did the damn thing i was highly uncomfortable during my research you know um I mean, not a, not a lot of people think that gun violence is like a really big deal, but it actually is. No, it it definitely, it, it definitely is. is. And I will say too, and I, you know, I've said this probably a hundred times a few different ways throughout the episode. But again, I really truly did not know that much about him. Mm-hmm. This is a very unusual case. Like yes. it went into some realms that I just was not expecting, like in terms of like how fucking not okay i mean you have to be mentally not okay to just open fire on people but like he was seriously like fucking sick yeah and like he really really needed help and he just i don't know this not to cut off your point i'm sorry but like this has just exceeded like what i ever thought that it was like my uh my conceptions that i had of this case before going into it Mm -hmm. completely different than how it actually is i'm just so fucking shocked by how unhinged like, this is truly fucking unhinged. Right. Well, we will get into it in part two, but he did have to have a competency hearing to to figure out whether he was competent to even stand trial. Yeah, I mean, imaginably so, because clear, clearly, I mean, and we hear it all the time, there's always a good old insanity defense, and you always right. have these people that want to do shit like this. And, you know, try for that plea. Try to be deemed as insane. But, but I mean, it's there for the people who really need it. Right. And I, I, I'm not even going to go out and say, you know, for sure that he's a person that necessarily deserves that. I don't right. know. But I can clearly see with him mm-hmm. specifically, he was not fucking sound in his head. Like, truly not sound. Right. Like, to the point, like, I don't know, like, as you were talking about it, like, there's a difference between a killer or someone who's doing something like this, they will portray delusion and insanity Mm -hmm. and it be a show. But I genuinely believe here that he actually fucking believes this. Yes. Like he is truly just the detachment from reality is insane. Um, 
I don't know what else to make of that. I'm just, like I said, you did the damn thing. I have many questions. I'm looking forward to next week. I mean, not really, but I am. I just, this just turned out to be so different than what I thought it was going to be, you know? like. And another thing that I wanted to bring up, which I will talk about more in part two, why the Lover's Lane area, right? Yeah, I have questions about that, too. Why the Lover's Lane area? Why is it couples going out on a date? And then women with brown hair, like his victim profile. I actually wanted to ask, like, did his biological mother look like that? Or did he, is that, that's where my brain went. You know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, it, it is definitely believed that because his mother had long, dark hair, uh, that he was targeting those specific women because of his mother. Got you. That That's what I was thinking. But, but you know. also, when targeting people who are in these lover's lanes areas, he is he is intruding on something that is supposed to be private right on something that is supposed to be special and private in between right. two people and um a lot of people said that this was a sexually satisfying thing for him yeah i mean by, i mean by interrupting that um and and by you know kind of voyeuring on them and then killing them. Right. And it also, like, with what you said about David's, you know, sexual history and his, you know, what he was saying about his relationships, how women called him ugly and they wouldn't want to date him and all this other stuff. That yeah. makes me wonder, too, like, if that sense of rejection yeah, plays a part in why he was targeting that. You know, like, it's, it's a whole line of questions that I have, I'm really excited to dive into a little bit more next week. I just like. Oh, but another psychiatrist, before we end this out, another psychiatrist did say um, in one of the documentaries that the act of lighting the fires itself as well, um, a lot of psychologists also deem that to be sexually gratifying for certain people because they are they're getting they're getting aroused from the type of control that they have with the external response. Yeah, so, that, that makes sense. So, I mean, even though that does kind of make sense, uh, the way that they put it in the documentary, he was like, oh, he's getting sexual gratification from this. And then he's getting sexual gratification from this. And I was like really is it really that or are you just concentrated on the sexual gratification <laughs> <laughs> it looks like we have some fucking we have yeah, some path to trek with this one yeah we're gonna definitely uh talk about that a little bit more i'm probably gonna include a little bit more from what the psychologists say regarding this case so gotcha. that way we can get some insight but yeah cool. guys that's basically it for part one well goodness gracious uh you have delivered my friend, I am very uncomfortable. Um, I one would even say that I'm at my Berkowitz end. Get out. <laughs> I'm telling one thing you can count on each week: dad jokes. It will never stop. It will just never ever stop. So. Thanks, you guys, for listening. On that note, we will go ahead and close out. Be sure to join us next Thursday for the conclusion of this case. We would love to have you. And, uh, yeah, if you would like to follow Ray and I and all of our... Well, great news. You can totally do that. I definitely just, like, choked on my own laugh. Whatever. You can find us on Facebook at... Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. Don't forget our Patreon, guys. www.patreon.com slash Gore Report Podcast.
And if you want to drop us a line or request a case, feel free to hit us up at gorereportpod at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, I don't know what to say at the end of this. I'm fucking shocked. I didn't know German Shepherds had demons in them and they command you to kill and there's a lot of there's there's just so much there's so much here just so much that i don't even want to begin to unravel like this motherfucker was crazy the damn devil dogs the damn devil dogs he was crazy so until next time damn demon dogs are you afraid of